Welcome to the Purse Podcast. My name is Jana Hustova, and we are changing the conversation for women about money and investing. I'm super excited to have Sean Richards back on the show. Sean is an independent economist who specializes in inflation measurement and monetary economics. This follows a career in the City of London where he specialized in derivatives, mainly options, on interest rates and bonds. He's a Bank of England watcher, which covers the issues of monetary policy and quantitative easing. Now, in this podcast interview, we talk about the UK and global economy with a focus on rising inflation and global currency debasement. We talk about what's in store in 2022 and what we should expect in this decade. Since the recording, which was in early December of 2021, UK inflation has gone up to 5.1% for the month of November, and the Bank of England has just recently increased interest rates from 0.1% to 0.25%. I hope you enjoyed this podcast interview as much as I did. Please note that this podcast interview is for informational purposes only. We do not provide investment advice. Sean, welcome back. Thank you. Now, I was keen to bring you back on the show so that we talk about the UK economy, the global economy, what's happened since June, where we are today, and also to talk specifically about inflation and then global currency debasement, which we're seeing as a result of the enormous money printing, the quantitative easing that's been happening around the world since the pandemic. And obviously that has a fairly significant impact on our money, the money that we hold, how much we can buy, et cetera. So before we dive into that, can you give us a bird's eye view? What's happening in the UK economy, the global economy right now? What's happening in inflation with interest rates, economic growth, et cetera? Okay. Well, for the UK... I think we reached a position whereby, um, to quite a song line, we got back to where we started from. So last month, maybe October, depending how the numbers play out, the UK economy got back to where it was when the pandemic hit. Now, of course, we find ourselves with one or two sort of restrictions and new rules coming in, maybe people cancelling restaurant bookings, that sort of thing, that we've maybe slipped back. So we're in a sort of situation yet again we're waiting to see how a sort of variant of COVID turns out. Even though, of course, in that situation, having got back, we've lost nearly two years in terms of hope for economic growth. So that's where we are on one side. In many ways, that's a good thing, because there were times when it looked like it was going to be worse than that. The other side of the coin, though, is that we're in an inflation burst. It's my area. I'm particularly anti this sort of thing. Why? because it hurts people. It's not so easy to measure. Hopefully, we'll come to that later. But even at the levels we're seeing now, which on the official numbers are more like 4%, if you look at the retail prices index, 6%, it hurts people because many people can't cover against that. For example, those that are on a fixed income, those that are on things like annuities, they're also trapped. And many wages don't rise fast enough as well. If we widen our perspective to the world, then they're slightly different things, probably in the leader of the packs, the United States, that's got ahead of the pandemic, Euro area, a bit more like the UK. 
But we're back to the same issue with inflation. If you measure US inflation the same way that we measure it in Europe and the UK, it's just over 7%. And of course, the euro area is 4%, 5%, depending which country you have, Spain 5.6. So the message in this phase is inflation. Now, why is it running so hot? Jeremy Powell, the Federal Reserve chairman, was it last week, said that he doesn't believe in the US that inflation is transitory because the narrative that we've been hearing throughout is inflation is transitory, it will fall back. Is that the case? Is inflation going to be permanent and permanently running up like this? Well, the word transitory is a bit of an abuse of the language because anything eventually ends, doesn't it? The issue is Mm. at what time does it end and, and how long does it last? And the problem that they're sort of getting at with that, but not actually saying, is it going to persist and hurt people? So they were trying to give the impression that it would turn up for a few months and go away. That was wrong. It was always likely to be wrong, in my view. And one of the reasons for that is that their policies, which set out to, in effect, get us out of the economic effects of the pandemic very quickly, were always likely to lead to this. If you pump up things like the money supply in the manner that they have, then if you look at something like broad money, there's an old rule of thumb that says between 18 and 24 months later, you'll get nominal growth, which will be real growth or inflation. Trouble is, a lot of things in the real economy, and people read or hear about things like supply shortages, take time to respond. Takes a while to tool up manufacturing lines and so on. So they can't respond that quickly. And that's why we have inflation now. Now, the central banks themselves always cherry pick the numbers. There was a speech earlier this week from Ben Broadbent at the Bank of England, and he was keying into energy prices, saying that they can't control energy prices with interest rates. That's true. But what they don't say is the fact that they pushed up demand so quickly that supply couldn't respond. And that's inflationary. And that's why we are where we are. And that problem is still washing through the system. Because in the UK, rate of money supply growth is still high. QE is still going on. That doesn't end till next week. The US, in spite of the fact that they talk of tapering, which for people that don't understand, is a reduction in the rate that they're buying government bonds, they're still doing it. So a lot of the forces are still ongoing. And of course, for a while now, it'll take for the 18 months, two years to roll through because they were doing this all the way through 2020 and early into this year. So that's where we stand. And the truth is that they lie, frankly. They didn't really want to do anything about this because they wanted to keep the economy juiced. So they sort of deployed language for a bit. And now they find themselves in an awkward situation because now we're waiting to see if this really kicks off and lasts for a long time. What I don't mean is just into 2022, because some of that now is baked in. For example, if we look at the UK, we know that there'll be very large rises in the price of domestic energy next April. That's the way the system works. Because, of course, it hasn't fully played out yet. We don't know exactly how much, but we know it will be a lot. And so that'll mean that the reading of inflation will pick up through there. 
The issue is, will other things come with it? Will wages follow? Will other prices rise? And I think that there are real dangers that there will be, because that's what usually happens. And then in this case, then we'll be worrying about this in 2022, 2023, and that'll have a real impact on people's living standards. That's the problem. I said earlier about mm. certain groups of people that can't keep up. Well, now I'm saying generally, can wages do that? Sticking with the UK example, there's a story ongoing at the minute for a big supermarket, Tesco, about distribution workers wanting a rise of 4%. That sounds a lot, and compared to where we've been, it is. But the thing is, that the likely path of inflation at the minute, it's not. That will be a loss, probably. Yeah, absolutely. Because again, now we're being told that inflation is going up to 5%, I think, in the UK by the end of this year, likely to be more than 5% in April. And as you say, Sean, it may continue to rise because of so many forces that are now pushing up inflation. And will wages continue to rise? Will they go up sufficiently high enough at the moment that's not the case. Certainly wages haven't been going up, have they, since the financial crisis. So people are actually poorer. Yeah. And there's a technical issue here on how this is measured. I'm afraid the official wages numbers have failed us. People think mm. that when they call it average earnings, it is an average earning in that thing. So they're like the, the typical person, that's not how they work, unfortunately. I actually reported them in the UK to the Office for Statistics Regulation back in February, saying that they were completely failing. And, and now they come with an explanation that, just to give an example, at the height of this, they were saying wage growth was nearly 8%. And then they started adjusting it. So they knocked about 3% off that, sometimes 4%. But the truth is actually that they don't know. And of course, this is now, to take your point of going back to the financial crisis, which one of the issues, particularly in the UK, was wage growth and will wage growth. Now the numbers have been blown up because the official series has seen rises up to 8%. So it looks like we've got back the growth that we didn't have, but it's all false. And it is actually sort of really rather poor, as I pointed out in my complaint. All we needed to get wages up was for the economy to collapse. It's obviously ridiculous, but sadly, that's what the numbers have measured. And there'll be historians, you know, in years to come that maybe haven't followed it closely or whatever like that, who'll believe the numbers and put it out. And people will be thinking, well, how did that happen? And the truth is that it didn't. So that's another theme of these times, that a lot of the numbers that we're given tell us less than what we thought. So going back to the inflation question, I'm a fan of the Retail Prices Index. Now, it's not perfect, no measure is, but you see that's mm -hmm. at 6%, that'll go to 7%. Why? One of the reasons is it has a go at including house prices, which have soared. Yeah. So for that reason, I think it's a better measure. The other one's done, and people look at the numbers, and to some extent, they trust them. Obviously, some people don't. But until they look at them, they wouldn't understand the euro area measure and the main UK one, the Bank of England targets, completely ignores owner-occupied housing, which has shot up. And also, it's been a deliberate policy to get it to shoot up. So in there, again, is something that's very misleading. Obviously, some people won't buy a house ever. Some have no intention of at the minute. But for those that do, they've seen a lot of inflation. Houses 
increasingly unaffordable, depending on where you are. Being a Londoner like me, prices haven't moved much, but that's only because they're so expensive in the first place. You know, most people can't afford them. And other parts of the country have called up. We've seen this around Europe, seen it in places like Vancouver in Canada, 20% annual growth. Mm. We've seen that in the United States. This is the issue. Yeah, these are shocking figures. And what's fascinating for me is that they continue to go up as well. <laughs> well, there's a curiosity here because, again, for people that don't understand, the UK cap taxes on property. We call it stamp duty. So you might have thought once that washed out of the system that prices would then go down. I did to some extent. But it turns out we're sort of a couple of months up the road. Now, maybe the numbers are still distorted. But the last two numbers from the Halifax and the Nationwide are showing quite strong growth again. So it's just keeping going, it would appear. One of the reasons that might be the case is that obviously with such low interest rates, where do you put your money? Where do you invest for a higher return? I think property is an obvious candidate for that. And that's why we're seeing this surge in demand, which is pushing up prices because supply is limited. But it is surprising, like you, Sean, I expected prices to come down, but no, they continue to go up. So yes, again, it's going to be increasingly difficult for younger people, especially who haven't been able to get onto the property ladder. Now, I'm interested, Sean, why are the central banks taking their time to raise interest rates? I mean, besides the obvious point, which is that we have a new COVID variant, Omicron, but they really have been dragging their feet. It was expected in the UK that we have an interest rate hike a couple of weeks ago, I think it was, and it just didn't happen. And it may not even happen now. Is that right? I was not a believer that they were going to raise. The reason for central banks being in the manner that they were, or I should say claimed reason, was that they'd be independent. But the truth is that the establishment took them back in, certainly in the UK. So you end up with a makeup of them, of people that are going to behave in a certain manner. For example, in another version, I believe and would have raised interest rates, but there's no one like me on it. You know, there's not really any way for it to happen. Putting it another way, if we go back to when the pandemic hit, now there was a particular day, March 19th, 2020, when the central banks panicked. If you look around, then they all moved that day in terms of various things. Now, Let's compare it with talk of interest rate rises. If you were thinking ahead of my logic, you might have done something in the spring this year. There's nothing then, nothing in the summer, nothing now. Very likely there'll be nothing from the Bank of England in December. On and on we go. And then the mm. next stage will be, oh, it's too late now. And the thing will pass. There's a clear discrepancy between their response functions. Interest rate cuts will be that day. Interest rate rises are always yeah. around the corner. And that's one of the problems of this time. And it's why we end up in the UK with an interest rate of only 0.1%. Now, obviously, some gain from that. We've looked at house prices and there are other types of assets that have gained from it, bonds. Certain shares will have gained from it if you pay a regular dividend. But there's also people on the other side, and this is another type of inflation, that can't buy. Think of any long-term saving, pensions. The numbers on that in various things look dreadful. Buying a house, same thing, because people have been able to take advantage of cheap mortgage rates. But for the next set of buyers, that's a problem. And, and that's where we are, and that's the issue. So 
I don't believe that they have any particular plan to raise interest rates. We might get a token move or two, but in the next recession, they'll cut again. And if we look around the world, that poses a problem because for the UK and US, presumably that means first time we'll see negative interest rates. For Europe, which already has them and shows no sign of getting out of it in saying they won't raise next year, then it'll go deeper. And that's the world where we end up with central bank digital coins. Because once you go more deeply negative into interest rates, they're afraid that'll affect the banks because the banks are basically underwater at that point. And so that's why they need to bring in digital coins to enforce it. So if anyone reads about that, there's all sorts of excuses for the implementation. It's for your benefit and that sort of thing. That's the way it's spun. But the real reason is so they can take interest rates deeper. They have, in my opinion, no plan for a way out of this. It's always lower. Maybe an occasional token back up. UK, in the last move, got up to three quarters of a percent. But the emergency rate was supposed to be 0.5. Now we're at 0.1. That's the problem. So are you saying, Sean, that we're unlikely to see interest rates go up in the UK? If anything, they're likely to go down lower, so we will be in negative interest rate territory. Yes. In the next recession, where else is left here for them to go? If they were believers in raising interest rates in response to it, they would already have done it, but they haven't. Whereas when it came to cuts and other moves last March, in some cases they did it that day. Mm. And that's the gap. And they've taken over in a sense, more control of the economy, that more things are done like that. But also, you see, in, in another form as to where they've got themselves in a trap, is all the bomb buying that they've done. They've made it cheap for governments to borrow. Now, on the one hand, that's a good thing, because it allowed governments to respond to the pandemic, spend more money, they could borrow it cheaply. The old thing of debt costs getting out of control for a while was taken away. But now, governments, in my opinion, have got rather addicted to that cheap borrowing costs. They don't want it to get more expensive, or at least in terms of interest rates, more expensive, because inflation is an issue now for them, because some of the debt's inflation-linked. So the pressure's on the central banks to keep that going. Now, there are some other pressures to keep bond yields low, but if we look around the world, there's been an enormous amount of buying from the central bank. So that if we stay with the UK, Bank of England next week will complete its program and it's bought 875 billion. Now, depending on how you measure the UK bond market, was a bit under half of it. So it's been an extraordinary amount of buying. It's made yields lower. How do they stop that? Will governments let them? Back to my point, they're not really keen on raising interest rates. It's the government that appoints the people that go into these central banks and they appoint people to deliver that. That's how it works, I'm afraid. Now, let's move on to talk about money printing or quantitative easing specifically and what that means for the value of currency. So UK currency, US currency, the money supply has gone up. 38%, I believe, Sean, I don't know whether you're familiar with this figure, in the US since the pandemic, which is just enormous. And I think it's gone up 11% in the UK since the start of the pandemic. 
Can you talk us through what this means specifically for global currency, for UK currency, for our purchasing power? Okay. Now, there are different types of measures that you're quoting there. The numbers for the UK sound low, and that's because we have a particularly broad definition of it. You can either go very broad on a definition of money or narrow. And mm-hmm. um, the UK takes a particularly broad measure. So ours is an issue. Now, if we look at it as we stand now, if we look at the numbers of the day, it's about 8% in terms of annual growth. Back to my point earlier, if you look two years ahead, then that gives you an idea of nominal growth. Now, if we take real growth, would be what? If we're lucky, say 2%, that leaves us with 6% of inflation. I'm not saying these numbers should be taken exactly literally, but there is inflationary pressure there. US takes a narrower number. It does kind of work in numbers. They have an M1 and M2, and we call out M4. That does give it just a rough idea of how it works, although the definitions are not exactly the same. The US, again, has thrown money at it. don't really have the wider measure to do the number that I just described, but it's a similar principle that money's washed into the system and it is inflationary. That's, as I was saying earlier, why we are where we are in terms of inflation picking up. Now, the currency point is a lot more awkward. If we were to go back and look at textbooks and things like that and say, well, what people expected to happen in this sort of situation, you talk of currencies falling, but they haven't. Why? Because pretty much everyone's been at the same game. So what are they going to fall against? In the foreign exchange markets, you always have to have a move against something. So what have we seen? Well, at times of fear, we see people moving to what are considered to be the safe haven currencies, which are the Swiss franc, Japanese yen, sometimes the euro. The euro's in that camp now. And move away from currencies that are more exposed. Then we're looking at the sort of major ones. At a time like that, the pound tends to get hit because... The UK has a big financial industry. So like say when the first announcement of the Omicron variant and people started to panic a little bit, then the pound fell, the yen rose. I can remember the numbers actually. The yen rose from two big figures against the US dollar from 115 to 113. You see, there's different moves to what you're saying. And the problem is for the currencies falling in that terms against each other, while some have, classic case recently has been the Turkish lira. As a general thing, they can't because it's got to be against another one and they're at the same game. Now, we can take this a bit wider because we can say, look at it against gold, which is a traditional alternative. But although gold did well for a while, it's not doing so well these days. So in a sense, we come to things like the various digital coins, Bitcoin and the others. It's one of the reasons why they've done well through the phase. Now, I know... Over the last few days, they've taken a dive. But if we look back over the whole sweep of this period, back to when the pandemic started, it's one of the reasons why they have done well. People have moved into them. And back to an earlier answer I gave, it's one of the reasons that property's gone up. I know that property is not a form of money, but it is a place where people can sort of store it away. And like we were discussing, tends to go up. In fact, it's official policy for it to go up. So that's the situation we find ourselves in. And then there's another real extreme if we look at, say, stock markets. Where again, I know it's changed slightly recently, but tech stocks and things like Tesla have gone in. But it's sort of like a new world. 
people are desperate in some ways to find somewhere to put their money. So against Tesla, you've lost. But that's not the traditional thing of saying, I don't know, the UK does QE so the pound falls. It doesn't work like that anymore. It does for a little bit for a while, but then it all moves on. So it's got a lot more complicated. You made some important points there, Sean, and I'm so glad you brought up Bitcoin and crypto. Those who are you know, coming into this now and are taking the time to understand Bitcoin specifically and maybe Ethereum, that it may be a safe haven for your money as long as you invest over a longer period of time. What we've just talked about, what we're talking about in terms of what's happened to the UK economy, the global economy, the value of currency, this is extremely important. If your money isn't invested in assets and assets like Bitcoin, you are losing your purchasing power. And that is a big problem. Sean, do you think that central banks, the government will ever stop printing money in the UK? You're saying that will come to an end soon in the US. There's a big question mark over that. The issue here is how long can they stop it for? Because just to give an example, the European Central Bank stopped three years ago, but it only lasted for nine or 10 months, depending exactly on how you count it. They had to get back on the bike because for the reasons that I was saying earlier, for instance, they make it cheap for governments to borrow, then the economy started to struggle and so on. Now, it's actually quite a complicated area as to how this affects the economy anyway. In many ways, it doesn't. But one of the things is once central banks and governments get into this, they get addicted to it and then it comes back and comes back and particularly in the euro area i think we've lost sight of any idea of what life would be like without it they started this sort of wave of things back in 2015 now in negative interest rates lots of bomb buying i think they're actually afraid to stop before we get to any logical arguments i think we start with fear as to what would happen. And that's the issue with many of these things. So looking forwards, the US is slowing the rate at which it buys. So its first move was to cut from $120 billion a month to 105. Now that's not an enormous move when you look at inflation where it is. They're now saying they might double the rate of reduction, so 30 billion a month rather than 15. But to my mind, this is an element of kicking the can away because even at the accelerated rate, if it turns up, then they make another decision in March. So then they might think of interest rates or they might not. So there's a lot that can happen in the meantime. And should we see another downturn? Then, of course, they'd act instantly on that. That's the trap here. For us to actually see any interest rate rises, inflation's going to have to remain very high to panic them in it. Otherwise, they're going to say, oh, it's too late to respond now. Sorry, we missed the chance, which is kind of what they're hoping to be able to say. So that's where we stand. And these policies have the habit of coming back because look at where interest rates are. They're much lower than people thought they'd be. The previous governor of the Bank of England told us that the lower bound in the UK was half a percent. He was then part of the votes that cut it to 0.1. So made a liar of himself. And that's the thing. They're saying you couldn't get negative interest rates in the US. Well, in the next recession, probably we will, as I was explaining earlier. So that's the situation. The policies keep coming back. Why? It's a trap. Because they're not a cure for the problems that we have. 
they cover some things up for a while, but then they find they keep needing them. So it's not actually a treatment, is it? A treatment, you go into something, and then at some future date, you're better. You take antibiotics for something or something for something else, and then after a period, you don't take it anymore because you're better. But this is permanent. Why? Because it hasn't really made it better. But it has got us into a situation whereby those in power get addicted to it, and they're afraid to stop because they think, oh, what happens once we stop if it all collapses? It all starts going wrong. They'll be thinking we were a pack of fools. Well, maybe they are. But because it's still them in charge, then there's no change. And that's where we find ourselves. So we're sort of basically, in many respects, strapped in for the ride. We don't know exactly what the ride will be because we don't know how the economy will behave. And this is another area where I disagree with them because at the minute we can see forwards maybe a couple of months you know there was a spell for example when the omicron variant was announced and we couldn't see forward anything at all because everything then depended if maybe a lot of people fell ill maybe worse and so on whereas they're trying to tell us they can look two years ahead it's plaguely rubbish but that's the yarn that they're spinning and this has been something that's been true through the credit crunch that things have swung around and actually we can't see very far ahead at all but they keep going with the sort of argument, oh, they can see two or three years ahead. Of course they can't. We can barely see two or three months ahead of the minute if we can do that. Sean, what's worst case scenario? I mean, we, you talk about us caught in this trap. We're in this dysfunctional system. It's like a downward spiral. It sounds like we simply can't afford to put up interest rates because everyone is so leveraged up, the whole system would fall over and we simply can't afford to do that. It would wipe out corporations, pensions, people's wealth would disappear. What's likely to happen? I mean, this is your opinion, obviously, looking into a crystal ball, but we are in a downward spiral. So where do we go from here? Well, you see, there are good things and there are bad things. There are lots of things that go on that there's quite a bit of advancement. I don't want to be too downbeat for this sort of ordinary person. I'm quite optimistic. There'll be changes and there'll be things that go on. But in terms of official policies, a lot of it comes from the way that these things are measured. For example, economies are measured in terms of GDP, gross domestic product, but it's a pretty bad measure. And there are all sorts of problems with it. But life is twisted to fit that number, governments like that like to say we're doing well. That doesn't necessarily represent that we are. And there are all sorts of issues with measuring inflation and things like that, which means that we sort of keep churning around in the same pool. That's, I think, as much as the issue. If we actually admitted that there were problems, and then also a lot of the things I've been describing so far, people who think of as an art, or a down. But many of them are simply an exchange and an exchange away from one group of people to another. That's the problem. So in essence, in a broad sweep, things have been taken away from savers and given to debtors. But there's another group that's been sort of given money. And those are what's called the rentier class, those that rent things out. There's a whole move towards that. 
And if you think of it in life, many things are switching that way. So younger people, rather than owning things, will tend to rent them. Now, this in my lifetime is going full circle. I know things are different now in terms of how you rent and stuff like that. For example, my grandparents and to some extent my parents rented stuff. They rented things like the television and so on. What do people now have? Well, more and more things on a monthly contract. But, of course, that's less secure, isn't it? You know, one of the dreams, if you think of it just in property terms, of someone owning their own property is that they have sort of control over their own lives. If you're forever renting, you may have stuff, but for how many months can you keep it up? And I think without getting too deep into crypto or DeFi, I think we're going to see a slow migration away from the traditional financial system to decentralized finance. And that's for another podcast, but we are coming to a point where we simply need a new way. So, Sean, I'm interested also in your view around the fact that there is a rise in aging population. We have technology, we have indebtedness, all of this, which is leading to slower economic growth. What are your thoughts about that? And what metrics should we be paying more attention to? I think that the aging population thing is a good thing. People are living longer. It's one of the reasons why economics is sometimes called the dismal science. And it translates into economics as a bad thing, which, you know, who doesn't in general want to live longer? But the thing is also, so many things are set around that we have to have growth. Maybe for a while we can't. You know, to some extent, Japan has been a way ahead here. In some ways, Japan's a bad example, but in some ways good. Even through this, Japan looks like it's going to have very little or maybe no inflation. So it's quite anti that that side of it they do okay on so that's one issue they have a very aged population also their population shrinking now again on the conventional metric that's bad how do you have gdp growth or at least it's more awkward because you've got a break on it but then maybe in terms of resources and things like that at the minute there are too many of us and we need some populations and that sort of thing to come back so there are issues like that, that we could sort of try another way. We're facing two really big pulls at the minute. On the one hand is the green argument, using resources and so on, climate change, whether you believe in that or not. But then on the other side, we won't face up to the fact that an answer to it is maybe fewer people and not forever charging around for growth. And so there's an issue there because it's going to be lots more people around well, they're going to want things. They're going to want to use resources and so on, aren't they? So the fundamental question might be around that. And I think the other thing to keep in mind is with the rise in aging population, they tend to spend less, right? So just going back to our demand and supply argument, there's less demand because the biggest population, the baby boomers, have all retired and tend to spend less money. You know, again, we're likely to see that slower economic growth and gradual deflation. Well, some of it, but remember, some areas will boom, for example, and that creates another problem as an area I've spent a lot of time looking at, because see, that goes into the GDP figures and it's dreadfully measured. The UK tried to be clever and measured the output of the health sector 
also tried it in education and then reads my work and the stuff I've written on that. And the thing is that you can't really, because how do you measure it? How do you measure, say, the productivity of a surgeon? Do you really want him doing or her five operations rather than four? You might not, because you might want the four done properly and so on. So there's a whole load of issues around this that some of the problems simply come from the way that we try and measure it. And then we distort things to try and make the measured number look good rather than the real world. Sean, you've shared so much with us today. Looking ahead, what do you envisage happening from an economic standpoint in this decade? What should people be looking out for? What metrics should they be paying attention to? I think that there are various ones you can look around at. I think that, in a sense, some of these things we don't know. I'm a big fan of the film 2001, A Space Odyssey. There's a figure that and they look for something wonderful. Those that have followed the film, the obelisk and alien life and so on. And my point in that is that I'm hopeful on that side. Human beings can be very creative and things will turn up that we don't know about. In terms of where we are in the current situation, I'm afraid that the trends to negative interest rates on that in the world that we do know are a problem because that's a force we're struggling to get out of. And this will play out in lots of ways that at the minute are very hard to predict because the honest answer right now, as I was saying earlier, is we can't see very far ahead. We can see some trends in the background negative interest rates in any next recession, more QE bond buying. But in terms of other stuff, it's very hard to see and how economies will do. So that's where we stand, in my opinion. I would say just to wrap up, for folks that are listening, I write about this in the Purse newsletter, but if you can afford to buy assets, you want to be buying assets and you want to be buying assets where the value continues to go up. So again, it's one of the reasons, especially young people are looking at crypto, they can't afford to buy anything else. And obviously we see so much money going into BC, which is very risky capital, but it's where you're seeing very high rates of return. And obviously the equity market, because investors are confident that the government central banks can't afford for it to go down too much. I think if we were going to see a collapse, if the financial system was going to fall over, it was going to happen in 2020 and it didn't. It rebound very quickly because the government stepped in. Sean, thank you again for your time. No problem. Pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for joining me today. If you would like to connect with me, you can find me online at Join the Purse or you can subscribe to our newsletter, jointhepurse.substack.com. Until next time, goodbye. Goodbye.